You're listening to Beyond the Plate with Andrew Kaplan. That sounds so weird. You're listening to Beyond the Plate with Cappy. You have to respect the people who come to the restaurant. They often travel from far away and they spend a lot of money. They invest their time and they're sort of worthy of your best effort in return. Hey everyone, this is Cappy and you're listening to Beyond the Plate, a podcast where I sit down in person with the world's culinary elite to explore their journey into the industry and the social impact they have made in their community. Every episode we share inspiring stories of what it means to be in today's bustling hospitality industry. Today's an interesting episode. We're going global. My guess is you've never come across Jarpin Sweden on a map. If you have, you may know that it's home to one of the world's top restaurants and Chef Magnus Nilsson. Nilsson is the head chef of Fabiken Magazine at Restaurant. Here's why you may recognize this name. Nilsson's been featured on the Netflix series Chef's Table, as well as the television series The Mind of a Chef. In sitting with Nilsson, he's one of the most intelligent people that I've ever had a conversation with. His points of view are simply incredible. To be honest, I received a note from my editor in the middle of him editing this, saying how smart Nilsson was. You're going to love this one. Fabiken has been a mainstay on the San Pellegrino World's 50 Best Restaurant list, first earning the accolade when Nilsson was in his 20s. He's trained as a chef and sommelier. He's worked in Paris and came back to Sweden to be sommelier of Fabiken. Within a year, he took over running the restaurant. Nilsson doesn't do too much media, so we were super appreciative that he was able to take the time to sit down with us. He was in Chicago at the Swedish American Museum promoting his new photographic essay book. He is the author of three books, all published by Fiden, Faviken, The Nordic Cookbook, and Nordic, a photographic essay of landscapes, food, and people. In 2015, Nilsson was awarded the White Guide Global Gastronomy Award. Other notable chefs that have received this include Enrique Olvera, Dan Barber, Rene Redzepi, Massimo Batora, David Chang, and on and on. We talk a lot about Nordic food and the culture. Nilsson discusses the misconceptions of it and what he believes it actually is. He makes some really intriguing references along the way. We talk a ton about hospitality as well, which I love because people like Eric Repair brought this up just a couple weeks ago, and we have a, another global chef that is going to talk a lot about this in the coming weeks. When I asked him about social impact, a big part of this podcast, he said he feels that finding a cause feels forced, and he discusses his point of view and how he gives back to his community. Please enjoy this conversation as we go beyond the plate with Chef Magnus Nilsson. Welcome to Chicago. Thank you. So we are in the Swedish Museum in Andersonville, Chicago, uh, and I'm here for a couple of days to uh, support the exhibition of my photos of Nordic landscapes and Nordic food culture. I'm jumping right in. Many people know you from Chef's Table on Netflix, but for those who may not have seen it or read about you, tell us who is Magnus Nilsson? I'm a chef and uh, I run a restaurant called Faviken Magasinet. And I usually say that it's up north in Sweden, but it's actually just halfway up through Sweden, but it's the easiest way of making people understand that it's not just outside of Stockholm. It's a small small restaurant that does uh, a sort of a contemporary reflection on the food culture of that part of Scandinavia and sort of my past as a cook over the last 
12, 15 years. Educate us on what is Nordic food. The thing with Nordic food that I think is sort of the, the most important thing to understand straight from the beginning when we talk about it is that it's most likely uh, the most misunderstood food culture in the world. Simply because there is very little information to, to have, you know, if you if you don't have uh, people in the Nordic countries that you know very well. Uh, and there are two reasons for this. One is that the information that you can find in print and in sort of uh, different media, it's largely about a handful of very iconic dishes that, you know, like the herring, the meatballs, uh, open-faced sandwiches, whatever, that do not really reflect what people actually eat on an everyday basis. Or the information is about a couple of very, very high-end ambitious restaurants like Favikin or Noma and a couple of others, uh, which doesn't really reflect what people eat either. So that's the first thing I think you, you need to think about when you think about Nordic food, at least that the information out there is very, very limited. And then the second thing that makes Nordic food hard to access and therefore misunderstood is that we don't have a tradition in the Nordic countries of eating an everyday meal in restaurants. That's a new thing. I mean, that's like the last 30 or 40 years. And that niche of restaurants, it's largely been filled with ethnic food. So the traditional Nordic food is eaten at home, making it really difficult for someone not from there to even get a chance to see what it is. Would you say it's more like, um, I feel like the food is it's more of a culture than a cuisine in a way. Does that make sense? Yeah, I don't know. It's like the thing also with the Nordic region is that it's a geographical construction. I mean, it's not a homogenous cultural region. It's, uh, you know, someone sat down in a mapping, sat, sat down in a mapping office somewhere at some point and decided that hmm, these countries here are going to be in a region and now we call it the Nordic region. Uh, but if you look at it, just the sheer size of it from Finland in the very east to Greenland in the west and everything in between. I mean, you can fit the whole rest of Europe a couple of times over in that geographical space. And and that leads to a lot of diversity because there's so many different climate zones and cultural zones within the Nordic region. I think that's also, I mean, something that's very important when talking about Nordic food, um, that there is no such thing as a pan-Nordic food culture. I mean, it's all a composite of many different food cultures. And to me, that was one of the sort of motivations to also writing a book about Nordic food culture, just because I felt that no one really understood what it was. Uh, it would be like saying European food culture, and then including everything from you know Portugal to England to some Poland, and you know, um, no one does that. How would you describe your style of cooking? I never do that, actually. <laughs> okay. I don't. Uh, and I think it's, it's partly because I think it's, uh, it's difficult to describe yourself what people are going to perceive when they eat the food. But then also because I feel like these days, I mean, there's so much information out there easily accessible by everyone on what it is that we do that I think it's sort of better that people find it from another source than yeah. me telling them, like, this is what I, this is what I want you to you know, feel uh, right. about my cooking. I feel like you see and use ingredients in a way that others don't. The dairy cow, for example, mm. with things like that. But I suppose you're drawing inspiration and creativity. Yeah, from. I mean, I think, I think it's like running a restaurant. doesn't really matter where you do it, but running a restaurant, it's about making the most of what you have around you, making the most of the possibilities you have around you, but also making the most out of what's difficult around you. Um, and it doesn't, doesn't matter whether it's in the countryside, like Favikin, uh, or in a city, or wherever. Uh, it's just sort of, to me, what's most important. And 
for a place like Fabiken, you know, for example, Jämtland, where Fabiken is located, they have a traditionally a big dairy uh, industry, mm. lots of dairy farms, lots of uh, cheese production, uh, stuff like that, uh, which leads to an abundance of old dairy cattle or dairy cows to be used as food. Um, and so for me, it's, it's, it's important to just make things that sort of make sense there and then. Because it's like, it's like in a city, you know? Uh, no one in their right mind would try to run a restaurant like Fabric in a city because it doesn't make sense. It would just be wrong and it would be fake. Whilst in a city, you know, you perhaps you want to make the most out of what makes a city great, which is the huge cultural influence from, you know, many different parts of the world, a great influx of different types of products and things like that. And to me, that's like the, the hallmark of a great restaurant, that they really reflect uh, the place where they're located. Let's jump into a speed round with you really quick of like first things that come to your head. What did you have for dinner last night? Uh, I didn't have dinner last night. Ah. I, I mean, I ate at the plane and then I came here. I mean, it was, uh, <laughs> you know, I went to sleep. Name a smell in the kitchen you love. Uh, clean. The smell of clean. <laughs> Name a smell in the kitchen you hate. Well, it's the opposite. Like, I mean, when the kitchen smells like stale and unclean. Uh-huh. Uh, and, and that doesn't have to always be because the kitchen is, in fact, not clean. It can just be that it's unused also. And that smells in a particular way that's just not nice you know what pisses you off in a kitchen i mean when people are disrespectful of the customer that's something that's it always pisses me off because it's very easy when you're in a kitchen and you don't have customer contact to forget what it is that we're doing there what it is that is the purpose of a restaurant which is you know a place for people to have a good time and enjoy something um and when you see that people are lacking in self-discipline and respect for the customer in a way that makes their experience less good because you know you might recognize um, an error that you made for example but you might might make a, a decision not to correct it either because you don't care about the customer's experience or because you lack in self-discipline and that's something that sort of pisses me off because that, that's the, the 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 fundamental reasons why restaurants exist is for people to have a good time there and if it sort of is within your reach as a restaurant employee to enhance someone's time in your restaurant, that you need to do that. That was the best speed round answer. <laughs> what makes you happy in the kitchen? I mean, when it's working, when it's functioning, when people who work there are happy, when you know there's a good vibe, uh, when it's sort of just all... Because a kitchen is such a complex machinery and when all the little cogs kind of function then it is amazing all right i'm going back to what pisses you off you mentioned the discipline is is that something that you work hard like that you instill on everybody there yeah i think that what we really try we talk we talk about it often and it is it's not always about discipline it's about self-discipline that you have to want to you know control the urge of perhaps being a bit lazy sometimes and so on but the most important thing and what we talk about often it is that you have to respect people who come to the restaurant they often travel from far away and they spend a lot of money they invest their time and they're sort of worthy of your best effort in return as a chef i'm going to call you like a culinary artist quite frankly i feel like everything has to evolve over time two-parter first how do you feel about the comparison of your food to art it's it's a comparison that doesn't really work actually if you if you think a bit more about it because an artist is entirely free to do whatever they want whilst a chef is not. A chef is bound by the craft. 
and there's artists who are also bound by the craft but not necessarily it's by their choosing because you can do craft or you can do art that has nothing to do with craft and you can have a craftsman reproducing your art and there are many ways around that but whilst with cooking uh, it's so intrinsically based on uh, the mastery of a craft that I, I don't like that comparison. It's also, if you look at it from a, a sort of practical standpoint, you know, uh, with art, for example, there is very little to no correlation between production cost and uh, retail value, for example. I mean, you can produce a painting that costs a couple of hundred dollars to make, but it can cost half a million to buy. Whilst uh, with food and restaurants, which is driven entirely by craft, even if you have a profitable business, it's still the price that the customer pay is very much related to the cost of the production of what they get. Brilliant. <laughs> Where do you see your food and the dining experience at Fabican going next? Is it? I was chatting with Rick Bayless and he was saying 30 years into his Frontier Grill restaurant, every month they redo the menu. And you ha- he's like, sometimes you don't want to because you get comfortable with a dish that's fantastic or that someone loves. So for you, is that, I feel like it's almost like a day by day thing. It, it is a day by day thing, but it's also something that we have built in a, a natural kind of slowness in changing our menu because I don't want to find myself in a situation where with a restaurant like Faviken where I mean our most frequent regulars come perhaps twice a year and most people that we consider regulars they come every two years you know Um, I don't want to find myself in a situation where we change a lot of things for the sake of change and not for the sake of improvement and it's also if you have, like, we're very proud of the fact that we have a lot of returning customers. About 20% of our revenue comes from people who've been at least once before, which is high for a restaurant like Faviken. I, I thought a lot about that, and I think that you have to respect the people come back, not just to have novelty, but also to relive an experience they've already have. So for me, it's about having a balance between uh, dishes that are very good and recognizable and that sets the tone and kind of creates a framework for the menu, but also dishes that are truly unique and new that you haven't seen elsewhere that lacks reference to other restaurants. And, and it needs to be a balance between those. So it's like it's like a, if you go to a, now we do another uh, art uh, parallel here. Yeah, but yeah. like in, in this case, it actually is like if you if you look at uh, an, an art museum, for example, I mean, you go there for your fourth visit because there is a temporary exhibition that you want to see. You want to catch it before it's gone. But you also enjoy the permanent exhibition when you're there, uh, even if you've seen those paintings three times. And, and I think it's like, for me, that's been important. You know, it's different if you run a, like a neighborhood restaurant where people come once a week or very often, you know, for an everyday meal. Then uh, I would want to include much more change in dishes and so on than we do. For me, it's more, more important to create like very new expressions and develop new technique rather than just sort of changing dishes up for the sake of change. Yeah. You use art as an example often. I feel like a guy like you draws creativity or inspiration from so many different places, yeah. but you have your books, which are interesting. You have your art here, which we're going to check out after this. And I feel like you have this keen eye for art. Does art influence you? Yeah. I mean, I think that as a creative person, what you make, like what you produce, which is in my case, the, the dinner experience most of the time, uh, it, it It'll be a combination, it will be a composite of everything you have with you, all of the experience that you've had as a person. And I've always been interested in art, uh, so that's a part of me. And then it becomes a part of the food as well. But it's often very hard to define exactly how. I mean, I can't look at a dish and it's like, ah, this it came from a painting I saw that time. You know, it's not like that, but it's there. 
and I think that's sort of a, one of the amazing things with having also run Fabrican now for almost 10 years that we've managed to build a framework that is basically a machine made to realize whatever creative ideas I might have. That's sort of what they do, the whole team at Fabiken. And that's uh, obviously an amazing opportunity for a creative person. So Fabiken has 12 seats? No, there are so many different uh, numbers of seats for Fabiken let's, out there. Let's, let's break this. Yes. Uh, so when, when I came there, it was just me working there and we had eight seats. That was the first sort of incarnation of the, of the dining room. Um, and then uh, when we had a few more employees coming in, we changed it to 12 seats. And that's in the book. That's why many people take that as the official seat number. And then uh, the dining room was initially designed for 16. And when we felt that we had the possibility to uh, fill that every day, then we expanded our staffing so that we could accommodate 16 in the dining room. And now, two years ago, we also added a communal table for eight. Nice. Which was also supposed to be there in the beginning, but we couldn't fill it, so we just never staffed to have it. So it's a total of 24 seats today, which is what the restaurant was sort of designed to have. Which is double 12, but still not a lot. (laughs) (laughs) Okay, so what, what would you say are some advantages or challenges of a restaurant with a small number of seats? Yeah, I mean, it has... You know, both advantages and disadvantages, I think, which every format will have. But for us, I mean, we couldn't do a big restaurant up there because of the produce. I mean, it would be very difficult to create an even flow of exceptional produce throughout the restaurant year round if the restaurant had, let's say, 70 seats, you know. Uh, it's challenging enough to uh, to get produce for those about 6,000 people a year that we already serve. And then for us also, I mean, the challenge would be uh, staffing. I mean, I think that we could recruit people to run a bigger restaurant. But where do your staff? They come from all over. I mean, I'm guessing like in the I apologize if I'm breaking your train of thought, but I'm just so intrigued because I'm guessing from the chef world. Now you probably have cooks from all over the I world. Mean, we, we've had cooks there, from, from all over the world for many years. But for me, like what we try to identify are like nice, good people who also want to live up there. Not just come there and work for a little bit and then go elsewhere. That's that's fine also if that happens. But we really try to find the people who are interested in living a longer period of time in Sweden. More of a lifestyle than a yeah, job. Yeah. Um, even if they are sometimes not more qualified than uh, someone else who has a, an amazing CV, we tend to go to uh, towards the person who wants to build a life there in our community. But it is like for us to expand to make a bigger restaurant, it would be very, you know, let's say that if we were to do lunch and dinner five days a week, which we do, we only do dinner now, uh, we would have to expand our staffing from 37, which is currently what we have in, in total, including the hotel and the, and the restaurant, uh, to perhaps 60. And I mean, where are they going to... Where are they going to live to start with? I mean, how it's going to be such a logistical nightmare around the the estate as well. I mean, when when are all those people are going to do shift change between lunch and dinner? Where the car is going to be? It's like there are many practical things like that, which our space is just not equipped for. So we're pretty happy with the format we have. Can you give us like the 30,000 foot view of Fabikin? Because we've, we've touched on like small number of seats and mm. hard to get a lot of produce and the hot, hotel part of it and that it's not near a major city. So I'm just going to make sure people understand like. So it's, uh, it's Fabikin is located on, a, uh, on an old mountain estate in in the sort of uh, on the western border of Sweden towards Norway. Uh, it's about 20 minutes away from a big ski town called Åre, 
um, which is where uh, people go skiing in the winter. If you live in Stockholm or something like that, that's where you take your ski holiday. Um, it's located about an hour away from the nearest airport and an hour by domestic flight from Stockholm. So about 600 kilometers from Stockholm. And how many hotel rooms are in the property? We have six rooms. Oh, that sounds so glorious. <laughs> I would like to have more lodging, though, in one way, uh, because it is one of those things. I mean, the, the idea with the countryside restaurant is kind of amazing that you, you get to spend so much more time with your customer than in a city restaurant where people are sort of in and out, they're going somewhere else. But we only have the six rooms, and we, we looked into maybe building some more lodging, but then you also come upon the question if you want to run a hotel, which is a totally different thing than running a restaurant with a couple of rooms. Are you doing all the food or amenities and things like that for the rooms? Yeah, it's all us. It's just us. I mean, the hotel is so small, it's just one person working with it, so... Do you spend a lot of time speaking with your guests? I spend I spend a lot of time there. How important is that? Which I think it's very important because I asked you a question about the kitchen and you answered about the guests in the dining room. So how important is that conversation, if you will, with guests? I mean, it is important because you can't expect everyone who comes to a restaurant like Favikin to have all the necessary information prior to their visit to... Uh, best enjoy what we have to offer them. Uh, so it is very important for the staff working in a restaurant like Fabrikin to be very, very open to interacting with the people who come to visit us so that we can make sure that they have the best possible experience. Not to sort of tell them once again what to feel and how to perceive it, but to make sure that they have the necessary tools to, you know, make their own, uh, make up their own opinion and sort of understand everything their own way. Do you have a most memorable guest moment, good or bad? No, we, do, we don't talk about our guests. <laughs> Never. <laughs> Fair. Yeah. <laughs> How about some, um, like highs and lows in your career yeah. overall? I mean, you're a young, you're a young guy, but talk about some highs and lows that you've had. I mean, I think, I think that there are, I, I, I quite often get the question of, of, you know, when we've made errors and, you know, some lows and some example of stuff we shouldn't have done and so on. And the fact is that I, I, I have a hard time identifying those because, I mean, you can pick a specific situation out of a sort of greater whole. Um, and you can say that that was perhaps not so good. But the fact is that all of those things that you've done, they are what make up the greater whole. And if you start changing something, it might not be the same thing anymore. For me, for example, sometimes I think that, you know, I opened Fabikina when I was 24, or I took it over when I was 24. Uh, and looking back, I was uh, nowhere near mature enough for that kind of responsibility, you know, with staffing and everything. And uh, it would have been from many kind of, if, if you, depending on how you look at it, it would have been very good for me, I think, to work a few more years with another very good restaurateur. It would have let me avoid to do quite a few mistakes. Then I kind of also think that if I hadn't made those mistakes myself and I hadn't started a bit ill-equipped in, in some ways, I don't think that Favikin would have been the same restaurant it is today. It would have been a different restaurant and not perhaps necessarily as unique, you know? You're 24 years old and that's when you get Favikin number 25 best restaurant in the world? I think that was a couple of years later, yeah. I mean, 
there's freaking over 20,000 restaurants in New York City, like alone, and (laughs) you get top 50. So with that, being young and receiving an accolade like that, how do you keep grounded? I mean, I think that, you know, living up north there, it kind of keeps you grounded. Like in the village where I live with my family, no one really cares about that stuff. You know, it's just sort of, I don't, I mean, this is probably something that we should have asked someone else, whether I'm still grounded, but I like to think that I am, you know, Uh, and I don't, I I don't feel like that's been a problem. And the, the fact is also that, I mean, and this is something that it's a bit sort of hard to describe because it's very easy to sound a bit jaded when you talk about it. But when you received a, a couple of handfuls of things like that, a couple of handfuls of awards like that, um, you kind of come to realize that, I mean, it's great every time someone tells you that you do something good and it's sort of a bit terrible every time someone says that this is not very nice, um, simply because we're all passionate. But you realize very quickly that those kinds of sort of accolades and and things they make you happy for a very very brief moment of time it's there and then and then you know it's over uh what is constantly pleasing though is to run a restaurant where people come and you can you can see them have a good time you can feel that what we think is important when it comes to hospitality and restaurants resonates with the customer. That's something that you can repeat every day, which is in the long run more important. And then there are like various strategic, obviously, angles on all of this as well. That, I mean, if we hadn't gotten a single award or accolade or mention, like you and I wouldn't sit here talking, no one would know about Fabrican. So there are, you know, factors like that that make make them very important but on a on a personal level the uh, the kind of confirmation that we're doing something good from the guests is, is so much more important and fulfilling from what i saw on tv you show some toughness in the kitchen or you have a a, a strong set of expectations yeah. what would your cooks your sushi jesper jesper i hate the head chef at fabi yeah, yeah, yeah so what would what would he or some of your line cooks say about you as a mentor i think that they today they would be uh, you know pretty pleased with me as a as a mentor i mean and that was sort of what I was referring to as well initially. I mean, I was 24 years old uh, when I kind of started running Fabriken and was not really equipped to do that, to manage a team and all that. And I mean, I made plenty of mistakes, but I'd like to think that I've learned from them and gone from being a pretty poor manager and mentor to being a pretty good one. Obviously, people don't tell you these things, but you can still sort of read it in the signs. You can see that people used to work at Fabriken for a very short period of time before leaving and going on somewhere else, which is often the case with restaurants like Fabric and to the situation we have today where people just don't leave. They're there and we have a lot of line cooks that work with us for several years and and, uh, and that's sort of the, the best receipt that we're, not just me, but the other managers at Fabric and so that we're doing something right with the way we manage our team, that they, they want to stay there and work with us. There's a part that I loved in one of the scenes of a chef's table that says, you say the service was pretty good. Said it was pretty good. Wasn't fantastic service. Very ordinary. Yeah. <laughs> How do you define service or dish, for that matter, as fantastic? Yeah, that, that's sort of a, a very difficult thing to define uh, in sort of uh, in technical terms. Yeah, because I, that's I have, something you feel. Sure. I have a friend, and he asked me how something was, or if it was perfect, and I was like, "Well, how do you define perfect?" And he said, "Perfection is defined by its absence." Yeah. <laughs> and I was like, "Huh." Yeah. <laughs> no, but the, the thing is that I mean, the best for, for a, it's not about achieving the like the 
the pinnacle of perfection in the sense that it can't be any better. Like each specific, you know, component that makes up the meal can't be any better every time because that's unachievable. There are too many variables in cooking and running a restaurant because we work with you know biological material in terms of food and we work with people that cook the food and people who are going to eat the food and it's like it's just that's not how it works and i think that uh describing a service as perfectly ordinary is sort of the the best thing you can really have in a very ambitious restaurant because what you need to do when you run a restaurant where people pay as much as they do with favik and then you know our commitment to the customer is to deliver something that will make them satisfied and happy and it can never fail our ordinary is at a very very high level sure. already but that's what we want to do on average and then we want to rise higher sometimes but we never want to go below our ordinary ever you know and that's sort of the, the, the i think that's the also hallmark of a, a great restaurant is that you've managed to kind of uh, create a situation where you never or at least very very rarely fail can you share how much are people paying for a meal the, the the menu is 3000 swedish krona and i mean right now the dollar is very low so yeah, okay. for you guys it's expensive really expensive now but i mean that's like 350 dollars okay uh, and then with drinks and everything on top it's about 550 dollars per head got it i mean it's a lot of money sure it sounds like your guests are getting what they pay for though i mean i i, I think that we offer very good value there is no discussing you know uh, or, or, or kind of trying to get around the fact that it's a lot of money. It's a lot of money to pay for uh, a short experience or if you see it that way, a meal. Um, but if you look at our production cost, then we are offering very good value for the customer's uh, sort of investment in their experience. We talk about your ordinary, fantastic things that may be extraordinary. Can you share the last overall restaurant experience that stopped you in your tracks? No. <laughs> <laughs> no, I mean, it's like I, I eat in a lot of restaurants and uh, I mean, the, 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 the more of them I eat in and the longer I've been sort of cooking professional myself, I tend to gravitate more and more towards very simple restaurant experiences when mm -hmm. I go out to eat myself. Are you hard to please? No, I'm very easy to please. I mean, to me, just the fact that if, if I feel that someone is cooking for me, then I'm pretty happy. Because that's, that's actually a feeling that, I mean, that, that might sound like very easy, actually, but it's not. Because that's, a, I think, the, a feeling that a lot of restaurants today get wrong. I mean, you understand what I mean? You, you come to restaurants and you want to feel that they're cooking for me. Absolutely. That's a, it's not easy always. But, you know, uh, quite often I, I, I get that more frequently on uh, simpler restaurants and restaurants that are less high profile. I want to chat about your family a little bit and growing up, like you growing up. You're a father of three. Is that right? Yeah. Do you cook at home? Yeah, I do. What do your kids' plates look like? I mean, after they're done <laughs> over four. <laughs> no, I mean, we, we, eat, we eat well at home, but it's less different from I think what most people eat than what most people would expect mm. if they were to kind of fantasize about what we eat at home because it's still I mean Tova my wife she also works full-time and I mean, the kids are nine seven and four so they have school and activities and it's like you know a lot of stuff going on so I mean we have about as much time as anyone else to cook and that's sort of even if I happen to perhaps have slightly better technique than the average home cook mm. it doesn't mean that the circumstances allow us to eat much differently than 
almost everyone. You know? What traits would you say your parents instilled on you that you instill on your kids? I don't know. If it comes specifically to food, I think like one of the things that I was sort of given by them is the idea that the uh, the meal is an important thing. You know, that you sit down and you eat together, and that's important. Be perhaps more important than what you actually eat, and that's something that we try to do as well at home I is mean, that a cultural they, thing where you're from or it is it yeah. is but it's sort of going away people here eat less sure. and less and yeah here for sure we everyone talks about bringing the dinner table back in a way i you know i grew up around a dinner table every night of the week and it's very different now especially with it is technology and yeah, things yeah, like yeah. that no I, and I, I think that's something that we i mean we we don't we don't eat together like a cooked meal every single day of the week because Sort of our work life doesn't always allow that, um, but most of the days we do. Do you have a first food memory as a kid for you? Yeah, I have, and I'm not sure if it is the first food memory, but it feels like it's the first one. And it's it's cutting cucumbers in my grandmother's kitchen when I was like maybe three or four years old. I like the smell of cucumbers in summer, you know, when they're like really dark green and fragrant. And is there a first most amazing meal that you remember having? Maybe as a kid or just uh, even as an adult? I don't have a specific one there. I mean, it would probably be like one of the first time sort of I ate in uh, a really good restaurant. But I don't, I don't know exactly which one. I don't have a specific one. But I mean, those those meals. I think when you're that age, like what could I have been then? Maybe fourteen, fifteen, when you're about to start high school. I think those, if you have a spe- specific interest, like I had in food. I mean, having a great experience in a restaurant it reinforces that interest so much. Yeah. Know? Did you go to culinary school after high school? No, culinary school as high school. Really? Yeah. That chef instructor who is uh, interviewed, <laughs> she's yes. your biggest fan, but it sounds like she's had an impact in, in your life. Yeah, I mean, I think that because I, I went to the, the high school when I where I went uh, to, to learn about cooking in restaurants. It was also a boarding school. So I moved out from my parents' house. Uh, quite young. I was just 15 or maybe 16 or something. And that had a big impact to kind of uh, get to learn relatively early how to, to sort of take care of, take care of myself. Uh, and that prepared me for a lot of other things later that I think if I look at the people that I grew up with uh, who didn't do the same thing but went to sort of a more traditional uh, sort of with high school and university and all that. I mean, it feels like sometimes, I mean, I'm 33 now. It feels like some of those people are still trying to kind of uh, yeah, sure. figure out how to <laughs> take care of themselves, you know? Yeah, no, trust me. I have friends in my 20s, 30s, and 40s that, <laughs> you know. I remember when I went to culinary school, I think I went till I was like 21, 22, but I would have friends calling me saying, that's so crazy. How do you know what you want to do with your life already? Yeah. I was like, I just, I know I love food. I don't know what I want to do with my life yet, but I yeah. know I love food. It's a good start like that. Yeah. And I mean, in Sweden, it's also, it's never too late to kind of change. Uh, and I mean, because we, the schooling system there is quite different from here and, and, and you can sort of change later if you want to, and it's not going to cost you anything. So I never felt that it was a very definitive choice either. Okay, I want to talk about social impact in giving back or charity, philanthropy, whatever we want to call it, um, which is a big component of this because we've spoken with a lot of um, chefs and restaurateurs and I'm always very curious and one of the main reasons why I started this podcast was to shine a light on how this incredible industry does give back. And here in the States, which I'm sure you're aware of, uh, there's a different event every night, whether it's food related or not, that these chefs can partake in 
but you know, you have to balance your schedule there. So I can imagine that you're a leader, you know, for Fabikin in and out of the kitchen for your staff, but can you share maybe some causes that you support? Yeah. For, for me, it's like, there's been a big change in uh, in how it is to be a chef that's been very visible throughout my career. Um, from, you know, the first sort of well-known TV chefs uh, that really broke through uh, 15, 20 years ago and uh, onwards to today, where if you're a, a decently successful chef, you're supposed to be everywhere and have an opinion on everything and, and, and you're supposed to single-handedly make the world into a perfect place, basically. And it doesn't really work uh, that way, the way I see it. And the fact is that I think that a lot of chefs today, they feel forced to find, you know, courses and find ways of sort of showing that they're serious about this stuff. And, and that's not always, I think, productive because that's not necessarily what you're best at doing. So for me, rather than trying to find like an enormous course that, that'll change the world, uh, I've seen it as a sort of a smaller thing that if all of us try to make as much as we can, you know, in our immediate surrounding, socially and geographically, and if everyone just did that, I mean, the world will be a lot better. Um, and that's sort of the approach that I've taken. So, I mean, for me, living in the, in the countryside, it's been just the fact that we employ you know, 52 people in our company uh, that pay tax in a in an area that's pretty scarcely populated. That's something that has a tremendous impact. It's a lot of money in for the city. Um, the fact that we spend about 40% of our turnover uh, on produce and most of that we buy from the immediate area as well, that also has a huge impact. And we, we, we try to really think about these things and behave responsibly around all of those things and seeing that if we maintain a functioning healthy business that's run in a responsible way in this part of the world i mean we set a very good example and and we do create like real sustainable improvements rather than very high flying fluffy yeah. improvement you know yeah and I to me that's been very important i think that's incredible do you want to elaborate on sustainability in general absolutely <laughs> no, awesome. so that's because i know thing. you're the right, right. person to i mean i mean that, that's also it's very interesting but, but like the, the type of restaurant that i run it's obviously completely unsustainable uh, deeply unsustainable on very many levels and maybe restaurants like fabric and where people travel from the whole world and so on they they shouldn't really exist you know but the fact is that if you look at the, the greater whole, uh, there are such a tiny part of everything that I think the example we set by doing certain things certain ways, it sort of offsets that the problem on the other hand, you know, and this is just me sort of uh, theoreticizing. I haven't oh, done any big surveys no, on if this is actually true, but, but I think that's actually the, the only way to justify what we do. And, and, the, and, and the thing is also that, I mean, we haven't set the rules. We haven't decided how things work in the world right now and the only thing you can really do is to play by the rules that are there and uh, here and now uh, people do travel for food and we have sort of a, the structure set up that we have and to me that's once again it's about making the most with that and if that then can lead to uh, a little bit of um, you know uh, positive change so that things are a little bit better when we leave than they were when we came that's good you know I knew you'd be good for a good theory. For <laughs> <laughs> um, all right, I want to close out a little bit here with um, a few things. What words of advice would you give to the teenage Magnus Nilsson? I mean, to do exactly the same 
as I did. Good. But because that's also, I mean, as I said before, you can always go back and you can perhaps think that, oh, I should have done this a bit different. I should have changed this and I should have, you know, thought differently here and so on. But I mean, if, if you do that, then like, I mean, I'm very, I'm very happy with the way things have gone in general and where they're going. So I wouldn't want to kind of fiddle about with that because then things could have taken a different turn. I feel like you surprise everyone always, every day, through your food and experiences and conversation. But what's next? Is there anything that's next or up your sleeve? Yeah, I mean, for me now we've come to the point uh, where it's never been more rewarding for me to run Faviken than it is currently on every level. I mean, uh, we finally have a team that's big enough and stable enough to really do everything that we wanted to do creatively. Um, we have enough customers that pay for themselves so that uh, we can really invest in in developing new technique and learning a lot of stuff. Um, and I think that's just an amazing position to be in. So. I mean, for the foreseeable future, I'm just going to continue developing Faviken to be better than it is today and to uh, produce new experiences for those who come there to eat. Thank you. Thank you. Thanks for having me. Quote, I don't want to find myself in a situation where we change a lot of things for the sake of change and not for the sake of improvement. Thanks again to Chef Magnus Nilsson. Find more on him at faviken.com. That's F. A-V-I-K-E-N dot com. Join us next week when Beyond the Plate presents Just the Plate, a short segment where chefs describe a recipe, sharing insider tips on what makes this specific dish meaningful to them. You may find me and keep up to date with this podcast across all social media platforms at On Cappy's Plate or go to www.beyondtheplatepodcast.com. We are on Twitter at BT Plate Podcast and we are on Facebook. This episode was produced by myself, along with Ian Cohen, Joel Yeaton, and Sean Petrosian. Thank you all around. Our music has been composed by Goldford. Find him at iGoldford. And a big thank you to my wife, Katie, who always lends a hand. And another hand. And another hand. Please rate, review, and subscribe to this podcast on your listening site of choice. Thank you for listening to Beyond the Plate. I'm Cappy, and remember, there are never too many cooks in the kitchen.